You're listening to Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast, where we all wear identical jumpsuits, speak into the same microphone, and taste approximately the same. Our guest today is comedian and now psychology PhD, Dr. Yakov Shmirnov, and we're going to be talking about the ways in which and the degree to which pop culture products drive us to be all the same. This is philosophy enthusiast and musician Mark Linton-Meyer, and I am the same. I'm Erica Spires in New York City, actor and musician, and I am the same. And this is Brian Hurt. And in my effort to be different, I am, of course, the same. Welcome. Hello, sameies in the audience. Thank you for being the same with us. Our guest, Yakov, is the one who injected today's question into our cerebral cortices. And he has his own idea of what sameness means and why society is maybe making us all the same. And we're going to be bringing him on here in a little bit to explain that. But first, I thought it'd be fun for us to review and riff on the various meanings that that could have. Well, I think because we're going to be in such agreement on this podcast, it's going to be a really short one. This is going to be the sound of us nodding to each other, saying, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, wise, trenchant, good comment. So who is that first good comment? So my first thought was cultural homogenization. That's a big thing with pop culture. The U.S. is pumping out its products to the world, and various local civilizations are worried about being overshadowed by the American influence. So that's a hilarious, fun topic to get into. <laughs> Do we have any, anything from our position of relative ignorance to say about that? This was brought up recently to me. A friend of mine just got back from China, and the kind of music that he was making over there was very strange and very niche, and we'll have a very small group of people who really listen to it in the U.S., but in China, they did really, really well. And he's like, you know, they loved us. Everything that they do there is just so cutting edge, and they're so far ahead of us as far as technology goes. Because of that, you forget, and then you get on the computer, and you're like, oh, crap, I can't look this thing up, and I can't get on Facebook. So I think that's definitely like a response of some cultures to be like, nope, we are going to still have our oneness. We're still going to monitor and make sure that other things don't come in. And honestly, sometimes I appreciate that. When I'm going to another country, I'm getting ready to go on a vacation to Ireland. I want to see more of what I think. I know that's not really true, but what I think Ireland should be, right? I don't want to go there and see the same places that I can see in New York City. You're going to go see the leprechauns? She's going to see some Starbucks on every corner in Dublin because they're there. Irish restaurants, or the Irish pubs feel like the Irish pubs in the U.S. a little bit too. I mean, not entirely. And maybe it's when you get out beyond the tourist centers. It's definitely there. And if you want to go to Berlin, you can see the Starbucks on their corner. Not to pick on Starbucks, and I'm a customer, but if you don't want to have a very broadening cultural experience in your travels, it's very easy not to these days. What McDonald's sells is expectations that are always met. That's what you're really getting when you go there. You're not getting great food, you're getting exactly what you expect to get because that's what they serve. And around the world, that's the case. To say that it's happening is to deny the fact that it's really happened. We're here and it's, I don't know that it's a bad thing, but it's a thing and it certainly works in multiple directions, right? We're getting culture from elsewhere into the United States and this homogenization is happening in all directions, isn't it? I think so. And I think it, I think this would really be a great topic to explore as we move forward, more about cultural homogenization as it relates to cultural appropriation. And what can we do to respect other cultures while at the same time embracing new ideas? 
Yeah, I was trying to think about this in terms of entertainment in particular, since that is the topic that we are supposedly the podcast is centered around. Supposedly. And, well, you were you mentioning Erica China in particular. I was just reading how China, since they have centralized control, they block entrance of particular movies. They sort of make it a movie-by-movie movie decision, and part of what goes into that is they want at least half of the movie business to be local Chinese products. So they'll let in certain big American movies, but then they'll shut out more. And in fact, the center of the story that I was reading was about the tariffs in particular and how they might be shutting out more than usual. You know, I think that's something, for me, it seems like a very positive thing that Netflix has done around the world. When I visited other countries, I can only get certain programs sometimes in certain countries, right? So when I was spending seven weeks in Paris, I watched a lot of British procedurals that I otherwise wouldn't be able to watch in the U.S. So I tried to like binge them as much as I could before I got back, and those weren't available to me. Going to France to sample the entertainment of Britain. I like that. Oh, absolutely. They love, I'm sure they loved it that I was doing it. I'm not sure what constitutes a local or an in-country movie in China anymore, because I've been noticing that a lot of movies are co-produced by Chinese companies now. I'll notice those credits in the beginning. And it seems like there's a thing with blockbusters to have one Chinese star in the cast. I noticed with Kong Skull Island, with the Star Trek movie that came out recently, they're just co-producing these things and they are becoming multinational endeavors more so than they were before. And I do think that's probably a good thing that more people are involved in this. You know, Why does it need to just be an American production when it can be a multinational production and maybe appeal to broad sensibilities and not just be something that we're pushing out into the world. That's a great point. Talking about broad sensibilities, I mean, when I was originally thinking about this, I'm like, oh, so if it's American imperialism, then everything that we create, like we're creating the world's culture in our image, but it's not everything we create. It's the things that carry over really well. So it's like the dumbest of the dumb action movies, <laughs> like those carry over really well, but the high dramas or whatever, the images that we have of ourselves, the conversations that we're having with ourselves about race or about how well is Selma doing in China? I, I don't know if people are watching that over there. Well, Selma doesn't need to make its money back in China. It's things like the Lone Ranger that really tanked overseas. It just didn't have appeal beyond our borders. Maybe it didn't have appeal within our borders. I, I didn't. Yeah, did you see that? <laughs> well, like most people, I didn't. But... <laughs> Not that it was bad. I just I, I can't tell you if it was any good. But oh, come on, I, I know take a stand, Brian. I, I, <laughs> the, the trailer was fine. I don't know, but that was one of the things about it is that it didn't have any global market, and I think that that's one of the things that movie makers are doing now. I'd like to say I read an article, but like a lot of us, I saw a headline that I didn't read, <laughs> and a headline talked about how they were having fewer sex scenes in movies now because. In an effort to have broad appeal, they're trying to get every potential viewer into every movie. And so PG-13 means you're really looking at pretty much anyone who has any money to spend, whereas R cuts out so many kids who can't get in. So if you're going to have a big, bloody, sexy movie, well, if you don't actually show sex, you can still keep it PG-13. And I'm wondering if that is just one example of, well, picking a topic, if we do a space movie, we can get everyone in the world to go see it. But if we do a Western, we can't get anyone besides Americans to go see it. So let's do a space movie. So as a result, we get fewer choices. We get movies with broad appeal, but then we get very few movies with niche appeal. 
So that's the trade-off. That's very interesting. I'd never thought of that. Like a space movie, of course, that's going to appeal to everyone. Well, not everyone, but it's going to appeal globally because it's something we can all relate to. It's nice for people like me because I've always enjoyed watching a bit of the sci-fi. So I never thought of like that's maybe why we're getting more of that is because it's appealing to people at a broader range now and it gets more people in the seats. It's a win for nerds. The Lone Ranger could have had Chow Young-Fat play Tonto instead of uh, Johnny Depp, and it would have been just as culturally accurate, and yet it would have had the overseas appeal. (laughs) Doesn't he say, I I feel like one of his parents might have Native American heritage or something, or don't they? I don't care. I I know. It still feels wrong. I agree. I'm not in the position of somebody who's in a culture that is being invaded by American influence, but it does seem like, you were saying, Brian, that the influence is two-way, and... The example that I always bring up is, so Disney was long seeping over borders, but then, so Osamu Tezuka is one of the guys who invented manga and directly like ripping off Disney in terms of like the, what the wide eyes are, which of course then has like sprung back and now is the Japanese invasion into the US and influencing sort of mainstream animation here. So I thought that was cool. I think we saw that with The Little Mermaid. That's really when it came back. And Ariel with her really wide, big eyes in a way that we hadn't seen in a Disney princess before. And that was anime and manga boomeranging back to us. So I think it's kind of a feedback loop there. I think this cultural homogenization isn't just global, it's also internal within our own culture, right? To say that it's... American culture being pushed out into the world. Well, what is American culture? And haven't we grown more homogeneous over the years? To say that we are a culture, I think, is maybe incorrect, but there is a lot of commonality going back to the Eisenhower years. And we all have visions of the exact same houses with the same picket fences and the same families with their one boy and one girl. And I know that was an image more than a reality. And that represented maybe a subset of the American experience. And a lot of people didn't have that, but it seems like that was what our culture was sort of becoming after World War II or what our culture was aspiring to. Brian, are you going to make me start singing Little Boxes by Pete Seeger, the theme song for Weeds? I don't know that, so you probably should. Can we afford that? Little boxes made of Tiki Tech, little boxes on the hillside, little boxes all the same. All the houses are the same. Everybody walks just the same. Anyway, that was, yes, exactly what you're referring to. Yeah, and I think this leads in really well to what you brought in Cat's Cradle, the example of the Grand Falloon and Karis. Is that how you say? I think so, yeah. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. So in the novel Cat's Cradle by Kurt Vonnegut, there is a religion that he events called Bokonanism. And it gets around this idea that we as humans are grouped or we group ourselves into different kinds of associations. And one of these are these inauthentic or involuntary associations called Grand Falloons. Kurt Vonnegut himself, who is from Indiana, refers to being a Hoosier as that's an idea of a Grand Falloon. Well, we're all from Indiana and we all identify as Hoosiers, but what does that really mean and how authentic is that? Versus the idea of a Keras, which is a voluntary association, when you have something really in common with someone 
and you identify with them. And I think it really gets to this idea of tribalism and whether we put ourselves in groups. And when we do that, if the grouping really doesn't have a lot of value, then does the power of that group something that is a power we should feel good about? Or is it going to be something that is for the good or for the advancement of the people who are in it? I admit right now as we're recording this, I'm wearing a Cubs hat, okay? And I'm a, I'm a Chicago Cubs fan. Living in St. Louis. Oh boy. So I don't know if that's a Karras or a Grand Falloon. On the one hand, when the Cubs won the World Series, I felt this joy with other people. And I feel like that was a kind of a pure happiness that I had. It's something I had in common with my family, my grandparents who are gone now, who really rooted for the Cubs. My grandmother in particular, I felt a real connection with her at that time. On the other hand, you know, I'll walk around Chicago with my Cubs head on and other people who are wearing them, I feel like I have nothing in common with them. And sometimes it's a bunch of drunk jabronis who I really kind of wish at that moment I didn't have the hat on. I, I don't want to have this association with every schmuck who's got a Cubs hat on. And I'm sure they feel the same way about me sometimes. I do the same. I have the Missouri shirt I've been wearing. Like I, I actually have three or four different shirts about being from the Ozarks or the Midwest or Missouri. And I like the designs. I like the fact that it makes me feel like I'm still, you know, I'm living in the city of New York where people are from everywhere. And it's nice to have a sense of identity with that. On the other hand, when I wear those, I'm very aware of the way that some of my friends might automatically presume people from that area to be. Whereas I don't align politically conservative, I might be seen as that if I wear that shirt. So I think part of my reason in wearing it is like, We're not all like that. We're all a little bit different. It's interesting kind of how this bleeds into those two ideas, right? Is like, on the one hand, we do feel a sense and a tie to something. On the other hand, how significant is that? And I like the example that they gave in the article about this, where there's like the grand floon is the balloon, and the caras is the air inside of it. And that's like the core of it, the people and the things and the values that you have that are greater than that one thing, like me being from Missouri, may not mean a lot, but it's the values of the people from there as well who I share those things with. The best I could think of is like having to do with globalization and maybe why we all like these alien movies. The further you get away from your grand floon, the more significant its meaning might become. You know, I didn't care about being from a small town. When I was in a small town, we didn't like the small town next to us. The further you get away from that, the more you identify with that small town next to you. That totally sounds right. I agree with that. And if you ever want to sound funny and intelligent, you'll quote Kurt Vonnegut, because everyone listening, he was funnier than you. He uh, really brings the absurdity of the Grand Falloon to the extreme in the book Cat's Cradle. I'm going to read a couple lines from it. And this is when the worldwide catastrophe happens in the book, which I'll let you read the book if you haven't. And if you haven't, go read it. And don't be listening to us. You're wasting your time. So when the big catastrophe happens on an island in the Caribbean, there are uh, two Americans who are present who I believe are, it's been a little while since I read it, I think they're working for the State Department. And so it talks about these tornadoes hitting. Vonnegut writes, We humans separated, fled my shattered battlements tumbling down staircases on the landward side. Only H. Low Crosby and his Hazel cried out, American, American, they cried, as though tornadoes were interested in the grand falloons to which their victims belonged. And I thought that was so great (laughs) that they would be shouting that. Uh, Really, I feel like I've 
seen lesser versions of that in the real world. And of course, that's why Kurt Vonnegut makes hay out of it. So I'm trying to connect this just overall talk about belonging to a group and whether it's arbitrary or whether the values propel the group with our fears about conformity. And clearly, both kinds of group can exert pressures to conformity. A state one can, through actual laws, this is something that Yaakov's going to be talking about. But I would think that it's actually the voluntary groups, the caresses, as you were calling them, right, where there's an intentional conformity, right? You want to mark yourself, you self-identify, that you're all going to wear the same hat because you want to show that you're on that team. So is that something that's just a harmless way to see somebody else with the hat and hopefully feel good about that, that you have something in common, or is this kind of pressure to conform inherently something to be worried about? I think we'll learn more about that from Yaakov, but I think it's good to feel a sense of belonging because it's very easy to feel alone. We wake up and we typically feel alone. We go to bed and we feel alone. But we see somebody else who has something similar to us and we can feel connected. And I think that's inherently a good thing. On the other hand trying to make other people fit into what makes us feel connected is not always a great thing. And it's great to have that diversity of somebody who feels differently than us, even if it makes us uncomfortable about ourselves. Because if everybody felt like we did, it wouldn't be so special now, would it? That's right. That's exactly right, Erica. And Mark, I I think the real concern is the middle ground, which is the pressure to conform. It's not that someone's making you, and it's not that you want to. I want to be a part of this. It's this idea that you feel like you can't be your own individual. And sort of to get back to those Eisenhower years, there was this glut of stories in the 1950s that had to do with being a conformist and feeling a need to conform, really transforming into having to conform through science fictional channels. There was a a pretty famous Twilight Zone in 1959 called Number 12 Looks Just Like You, where everyone is having surgery or procedure to end up looking like a certain set of ideal models, these good-looking men and women. And it's presented early on, this idea that it's all voluntary. And you do it, and everyone's so happy afterwards, and they're so beautiful afterwards. But in the course of the episode, we learn, of course, that it's only voluntary as long as you want to do it. And if you don't want to do it, it becomes mandatory. And the woman is resisting and resisting, but of course, after she's had the procedure, she realizes just how happy it made her. That classic Twilight Zone twist that was actually based on a 1952 story by Charles Beaumont. And then all the body snatcher stories really get at the same thing. Now, these are people being replaced by aliens in most of these stories. The father thing by Philip K. Dick and the puppet masters by Robert Heinlein. But it still got to this idea that everyone is becoming the same around you. And this pressure to give in to the need to be like everybody else, it continues on. I mean, this is something that I think still fascinates and concerns people. And body snatching stories and conformity stories have lived on very nicely over the decades, right? Mark, you had mentioned to me the Borg, right? And that's in Star Trek. And there must be other examples that I'm not even thinking of off the top of my head. Yeah. And I think these kind of critiques can come from almost any political direction. That if you're just kind of worried about whatever political attitude you don't like, you're worried about everybody becoming the same in representing that view that you don't like so much. So you could have this as an anti-capitalist thing and like, we're all being hypnotized to be mindless consumers. We get the illusion 
of diversity, right? We get the illusion of everybody has a different niche, but it's all marketing. You're still being a consumer. You're having your supposed unique preference appropriated by the capitalist machine and marketed back at you so that essentially what you were taking as your individuating characteristic ends up just being very, very surface level. And your actual behavior, you're acting just like everybody else. You're just a consumer. That's the distinction between being an individual and being part of a group, right? Other people think things and I know things because I'm who I am. (laughs) And oh, everyone else is just, yeah, they like that because they're this or that or whatever. But I like this because I'm me and I know what's good. Well, everyone's me to them. Yeah, they're just following the herd. Yeah. So it could be anti-communist and and we're going to hear from Yakov, one that is kind of worried about that in terms of the current political climate and pressures toward political correctness and You might think that I'm just trying to be nicer to people, I'm trying to correct past injustices, but at least according to the view that we're going to hear in a few minutes, maybe there's something more sinister. Maybe it's not a matter of your voluntary choice when this becomes a social movement and when it's kind of taken out of your individual hands. And what's that sound? It's the sound of our guest approaching, Yakov Shminov. Welcome. We're so glad to have you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm sure some folks who are familiar with your old comedy routines, what a country! I had to do that at least once. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we did. We talked about not doing that to you. I can handle it. I thought you just said I couldn't do the whole thing in the Russian accent. (laughs) Okay, fair enough. Although his accent work is pretty decent. So tell us, Yakov, you just got your psychology PhD, and the thing that you were interested in researching is what suggested this particular topic. Do you want to give us a little bit of background of what you've been studying? As you know, I grew up in the former Soviet Union, and it was at that time a society in which I thought, because I was told so, it was the best society in the world. And we believed in the government because we didn't have a choice. We were young, they called them pioneers, who were groomed to be later on, the members of the Communist Party. This was normal life. Life was not very good now that I know it, but at that time, everybody lived like that. We lived in a communal apartment. Nine families lived in one apartment. We shared one little bathroom, all 20 people who lived there. We had no phone, we had no car, and we thought we lived in paradise. And that's how we were told, and there was no way for us to get to know anything. I tell a joke that we had two channels on television. One was propaganda. Channel two, there was a KGB officer telling you turn back to channel one. This was the norm for us and everybody around us to live like that. When I came to the United States... I felt very different because I was, for the first time in my life, an individual who had some rights, choices, and I loved it. To say my couple of cousins that came to America, they went back to Russia because after being a couple of weeks in the United States, they decided that life in the United States, it's too difficult. Because here you have to take responsibility for who you are and what you want to do and be in your family, etc. When in the former Soviet Union, 
they didn't have to make any choices. The salaries were the same, whether you're a doctor or you're a plumber. Anybody would get the same amount of money once a month. You just had enough money to survive. And that's the mode that everybody lived in. So when I sensed the opportunity in the United States, I was very happy and wanted to take it on. And thank you to America. My career took off and I was able to do things that I could never dream of. That's what is concerning me today, that the political correctness, which, by the way, originated in the Soviet Union. That term was coined by Lenin in 1917. You can look it up in Encyclopedia Britannica, and it's pretty scary that that particular phrase grew and grew, and 40 million people in the Soviet Union were killed because they weren't politically correct. So my desire to talk about being the same is a code for not letting the freedom of speech and other freedoms that are so valuable and so rare in this world to go to waste because of political correctness. That's wonderful. When you moved here, where was the first city that you landed? I came to New York first, lived there for about six months, then moved to Florida for about six months, and then moved to Hollywood after that and lived there for like 20 years. The thing I would say about political correctness, that's a term I came across first in college several decades ago. It's very different in a society like in the United States because I feel like often people would maybe have unpopular opinions. It wasn't that they weren't allowed to express them, is they would express them and they would get shouted down or they'd get criticized because they were saying things that sometimes were ugly. They would fall back on, oh, well, you know, I have to be politically correct and I'm not allowed to say something. And my response is, oh, you're allowed to say it. I'm just allowed to disagree with you because free speech works two ways here. So no one was being marched off for having these viewpoints. It was, you're free to say it and I'm free to hate it and tell you that. I had no idea that term went back so far. That's really interesting, though I guess in hindsight, not that shocking. The challenge with this that political correctness sneaks up on you. Ten years ago, certain things were on television that are shocking today. In the popular culture, the office or friends, you look back and you go, they made jokes about fat people, they made jokes about women, they made jokes about minorities, and it was okay, it was just funny. Now it's no longer funny. So extreme example, Roseanne, not that I am defending what she did, but it was career suicide, which they literally killed her career because of one twit. There was no jury. There was no process of this. It was a decision that was made by the party that was in power. When I was in the Soviet Union, I was a comedian there. 
nobody told us how many millions of people were killed for political correctness, but I could sense it from my parents that we need to be quiet. Don't draw a picture of Statue of Liberty or anything like that because you're going to get in trouble and they'll put you away and we'll never see you. Things like that became normal there and it happened slowly. And once the people who been punished passed this information to the rest of the people, slowly it becomes the way people live. So my humor was censored by the Department of Jokes. I'm not exaggerating this. Every state of the Soviet Union had Department of Culture. So it had Department of Singers and Dancers and Music. And one department was specifically for jokes. The comedians who were working had to submit And then the bureaucrats would tell you, can you tell that joke or not? And then you would be approved to perform. And there would be informers in every theater who were controlling this to make sure that you say the right things. Just do a little thought experiment and think of Roseanne being in that society, right? And she says something that they deem is inappropriate, she would have never lost her job because they would have said, nope, you can't say that. But we have a very different culture here. I guess you're making the case that things are changing. We need to be aware of that. But it's interesting to think that on the one hand, you have all of this regulation, which we as Americans always think of, oh, that's bad and you shouldn't do that. But we are turning into that ourselves. Exactly. And in case of Roseanne, She wasn't doing that as an ABC show. She was just tweeting. A personal tweet. So that's like talking. If you're on the phone and you are saying something to other people, not that I'm saying she was correct. I'm just saying that there needs to be some kind of a regulation of what are the repercussions of this. Career suicide, it's basically the same thing that the party leaders would just say, You're going to prison for 10 years, hard labor, and most of those people never came back. So Roseanne would be not lost her job. She would lose her life. Isn't it fundamentally different, Yaakov? The network isn't the government. It's her employer doesn't like what she says, and they have the right, I guess, to fire her if she didn't bring a lawsuit. As soon as the government says you can't be saying these jokes or you can't have a livelihood. No one took her money away. I mean, the network isn't giving her more, but she still has all of her freedoms. In fact, she has the freedom to get another TV show from another network that maybe does want to put that out. Absolutely. And thank God that's why I'm still here (laughs) in the United States. What I'm saying is if you're not paying attention to this, it can tip over unexpectedly. And I'm saying that it has the pattern that has repeated itself over 20th century many, many times. I'm sensing it because I grew up with it. But for you, it's more challenging to sense that because this is not norm. People were able to hash it out, go to court. You're innocent till you're proven guilty. In my show, I have a joke that in Russia, we were guilty till we were executed. Oh. (laughs) I know it sounds gruesome, but that's what it turned to be. 
Nobody wanted it. It was all done in the name of betterment of the society, betterment for the people. And then the people who were on top became very controlling and used the mob of people who were poor and were not able to necessarily create what other rich people had. Once they were organized, then you know what happened. The revolution of 1917 and then Stalin taking over and all of that was not a pretty picture. Was it these particular ideas that uh, led you to want to study and get your doctorate in psychology? Yes, there was actually another aspect of this, and this brought me to this realization. I was researching more of laughter, like law of laughter. That was my dissertation. I was looking for a formula. What I came up with was needs being met plus sense of humor equals laughter. That was my original formula. And then after I defended my dissertation, I called my chair and I said, you know what? I missed something very important that you need to have the reciprocal opposites or complementary opposites to be able to have a conversation. So if I'm a comedian, I need an audience. If you are creating a podcast, you need an audience. We are having a conversation that is very respectful. I'm talking, you're listening, then you talk, I listen, and that's complementary opposite. When we become the same, then both people are the audience, let's say, or both people are the comedians, and they're heckling each other. It's not a pretty picture. And so that's what led me to recognize, I said, wow, this is happening between men and women. They're becoming more and more the same, and the society wants us to be the same. And equal is wonderful. It's fantastic. But the same is terrible. And that's what led me to recognition. Whoa, that's what they did in the Soviet Union. They made everybody the same. Doctors, professionals of different kinds, whether they were digging ditches or they were building homes, it doesn't matter. They were all getting the same pay and they were supposed to say the same things. So they became the same and that's what created. But prior to that, because there was 40 million people who did not want to be the same, they were killed. So people that would defend a certain degree of censorship in whatever form, you know, whether we want to get obscenity off of TV or something, you know, that was a big thing. That has actually let off quite a bit that you can get away with a lot more given the, you're not going to get too excited about what goes on network TV when somebody can just turn on the internet. Every kid has heard the most foul possible language by age seven or something. Go to school. But even if we're not talking about the fear that this is going to turn into a revolution, it seems like one of the things that you're pointing out is just having the climate where it's almost actually worse in a certain way that it's not official because then if this is a mass social movement that is flattening us out, then the rules by very nature of that can't be clear. If there was a central authority that just said, here are the guidelines, here are the boundaries, and you can't go beyond this, which is kind of what the TV stations do, right? You just can't say the word fuck. They'll actually list, these are the things you can't say, but you could still have a lot of freedom within that. But if you don't know what the rules exactly are, then 
it sounds like you're saying that fear takes hold, that you get extra conservative. You mouth only what you think will be acceptable, and that falsifies the whole sort of joke-telling process, that you're having to overthink things in a way that makes it unnatural, that you can't actually get honest laughter out of it. It's not just jokes we're dealing with. We're dealing with careers, accusations, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. They create their own algorithms and their own rules of what's acceptable or what's not. Let me give you an example. I was doing a show in Florida and the venue wanted to advertise my show and the show was called Make America Laugh Again. Facebook blocked it because they said, we don't want association with one party. And the question was, which party do you think I'm associating by saying that? Am I making fun of it? But they blocked it. And then a person who was doing marketing went back to them and said, well, can we just call it the Yakov Smirnov show? And they said, they blocked it again because we don't promote liquor. I can't win for losing. What I'm saying, those are things are built in already. If you look at China, what's going on there, they're ahead of us in terms of controlling the population with face recognition. They don't use credit cards anymore. They now can see your retina and they know how much money you got. You can buy things just by looking at the screen. That's where we're going. And they're controlling billion and a half people with technology now. And so what I'm saying, it's a very easy barrier to cross without recognizing that it exists. Can I ask if you feel like it's just momentum going in this direction? You know, you've been in this country for years and years now, and maybe is this a force that just can't be reversed? Is it inexorable? Are we heading this way? Or do you feel like there's actually something that can be done through mindful discussion or an act of will to back things up or say stop? Absolutely. I believe in that highly that once people are aware, look what happened with smoking. You know, 50 years ago, everybody smoked and nobody knew that there was danger. But once they were forced to put warning, this will kill you, it significantly cut down in the United States on amount of people are smoking. Same with alcohol. At least there needs to be awareness of what it can do to you. Then you still have a choice. Do I think that this society can survive? Absolutely. Because we have the left and the right and they're keeping each other in balance because when the left goes too far, Right goes, whoa, wait a minute, we are not going to let that happen. And vice versa, when the right goes too far, the left is going, these people will destroy the environment, these people will kill everything living just to make money, etc. So there is a balance happening. And I'm saying this engine that brought us here is very valuable. We don't want to kill that engine. One of the things you were voicing when we were talking about this topic in our planning call was having media products and other forces that make us all the same within a group. And then those groups, because they're so rife with conformity, then can't talk to each other. It sounded like you were talking about the breakdown, this balance between the left and the right. Right now, I feel like there is no conversation between the left and the right. The, the right can say, you're going too far with this political correctness all at once. But look at the sort of conformity that is clicking in in terms of can't be critical of Trump, 
they have their own sort of private conversation area. It seems like that counterbalancing can't even take place because the groups aren't talking. Correct. The reason I am passionate about this is the recognition that if you look at history, just 20th century, that was not too long ago. You recognize quickly that when you look at on the left, where it becomes groupthink, it becomes collective society, and it becomes tribal, that normally brings chaos and destruction, which we have proof with China and the Soviet Union of a 100 million people in the last century killed. Just to get to that place for socialism, which sounds great because socialism comes from the heart and capitalism comes from the head in a way, it sounds like a very attractive idea, socialism. And that's what buys people that everybody should be equal and everybody should be saying, being grateful for what they got and share everything. That society, a lot of times, and you can look at North Korea now and Venezuela and places like that, it turns into dictatorship. And then the people who were trying to find equality become vicious and they kill each other. And so we want to be aware of that extreme And then we want to look at the right side and realize that that was the Nazis. They were the capitalists who became this vicious part of this history. We're in between, but if we're not aware how far it can go, because most Americans have not experienced the communism or socialism, they don't know really about it. And I didn't know where I lived there. I had no idea. Now I can look on YouTube. There's tons of information on Stalin and Lenin and Trotsky and Mao Zedong and all of those people and how they did all what they did. But what their maintained, their goal was to create this fair socialistic society that made it impossible because people who were disagreeing with that, who worked harder to earn whatever they have earned, they didn't want to give that up. So the only way the mob can take care of that is to destroy them. I think there's a sense sometimes in the United States that things that happened in other places, and certainly that things that happened in the past are fundamentally different from the society we live in now, and it could never happen here. It's one piece of a very big tapestry of American exceptionalism. Everything that happened somewhere else was present day for that person in that society. If we think we're immune to this sort of thing, we're totally kidding ourselves. There was a phrase going around that said, all empires fall, there are no exceptions. Look at history, there's not a single empire that has fallen, that's still standing. It's a tautology, but it's true. They all come down eventually, and whether it's happening now or whether it's going to happen in the future, I don't know the answer to that. There is a potential that, yes, the empire lives through a certain cycle, and then it has to go. I don't believe even close that we're in that place. I believe that the system that was built in into America by the Constitution are still strong. And I believe that just because we had a division that happened during this election, 
that made everybody surprised that Trump won made it even more that gap became bigger. I get that. But I do believe that awareness of what, that the country can be healthy. It can be. We just need to continue the conversation. You're correct. In one corner, CNN and another corner, Fox, and they're fighting it out. And we're just watching this. And I'm saying once we're aware what socialism can bring, the way people see it and romanticize it, and I'm saying this doesn't happen yet because we're dealing with human nature. And the idea of Karl Marx was really good idea on paper, but it never happened. And a lot of people died because of that. I was having a conversation last night, not about this particular thing, but it reminds me, anyone who feels like they know 100% the right way is usually wrong. I sometimes feel very guilty that I don't take a stronger stance on certain things because I feel like I'm not fighting the good fight on whatever side. But I also am aware of these extremes and like what the forefathers created it does create that wonderful sense of checks and balances. And one of the things that I just personally try to do is on my Facebook, I try not to do the thing where I go through and block all the people who disagree with me. I have a lot of friends who say, oh, I got rid of them during the last election. Honestly, I think I got rid of one or two and they were just being nasty and like trolling my friends on my posts. But for the most part, I'm from Southern Missouri and I have a lot of friends who are conservative and I have a lot of friends. I live now in New York City, so of course, and I lived in Boston for almost 10 years. So I've been in the bluest of the blue and I've been in the middle of red and I've been in purple because at a time Missouri was very purple. And trying to talk about values and personal things because as soon as I found as soon as you start putting in a party name or specific things that either party is trying to do, that's when we have these contentious types of conversations. I don't know how to avoid it in the long run. Like, how do you actually create change in the government? But at least on a personal level, I feel like opening up the conversation is just like trying to be more tolerant and talking to people about their personal feelings about things. So I guess I want to try to shift the conversation a little bit to how this plays out in cultural products. Because yes, there's Twitter backlash, there's Twitter mobs. That's kind of fundamentally political action. Whereas I feel like if you're asking how does the PC culture thing play itself out in what we're seeing in movies, what we're seeing on TVs, well, it seems like it's more positive. One of the things that the PC culture is fundamentally trying to stamp out is intolerance, right? Is silencing minorities, giving minorities voices. So what we're seeing is more and more push toward representation, a push toward getting some of those voices that maybe were not heard, whether it's minority characters being the main character in a movie or better yet, the writers and creators of shows. And so it actually, to me, seems like that's part of a positive conversation. There's so many places where you can just turn on cable TV or whatever, and you can kind of find out, you know, I love the show Atlanta. That's a world that I never would have gotten to know about, probably if there wasn't this kind of positive push towards exposure of more cultural types in media. And so it seems like that is not a force that's making us all the same. That's actually a force that is exposing more difference. I would agree with you that it seemed more positive. I also think that for comedy, it becomes very restricted. A lot of comedians will not go on college campuses because they're being 
blocked because they might say something that might be offensive to somebody. So I think there's an extreme, there's an expression I heard not too long ago that if you want to know who rules over you, just think about who you're afraid to make fun of. Mm -hmm. I think you're in maybe the hardest industry right now, Yakov, because there are so (laughs) many stories about comedy. The act of pointing out absurdity, the act of making fun of something, to put it that way, there's a fundamental tension that you are imposing every time you do it. And that's really tough. I'm not complaining. I'm willing to look for the ways that it works. What I am passionate about is to be able to share some of this information and sometimes with humor and sometimes in the serious conversation in saying, be aware that you're driving on a narrow road and there's a cliff on one side and there's a cliff on another side. And you just need to be aware of what that means. I wouldn't disagree with that, but I would also say other than just political correctness, there needs to be some element of educating oneself to know that some of the things that we're saying that we're getting called out on being on PC are absolutely hurtful to people too, right? So there has to be an education element personally of like, oh, what I'm saying actually has its roots in something that's absolutely racist. I just never knew it before. I think that conversation is very important. And I believe that, again, there is that middle ground where awareness that we didn't have before helps. But when it goes overboard, then it becomes harmful. I find it funny that we're having this conversation with you, whose comedy is so positive. Yeah. But my awareness, believe me, when I was performing in the Soviet Union, I didn't know I was being trained by the best political correctness people in the planet. And so I'm prepared for this. My humor is still going to be neutral and happy, and I don't make fun of anybody except maybe myself. I have to ask you a question about that department of jokes you said where you had to submit. Was it ever a game where you would just try to have jokes that were clever enough to go over their heads that were still funny? Absolutely. Because they would have taken it out if they get it, but they didn't. In some cases, I remember one joke that I was so happy that they allowed me to keep. And it was about little ant that got married to female elephant. And after first wedding night, elephant died. And the little ant said, only one night I enjoyed myself. And now for the rest of my life, I have to dig this grave. <laughs> My audience would get this, is implication of dealing with this machine, the Communist Party, the Soviet Union, all of that was that big elephant. But they didn't catch it, so I was happy that I was able to sneak that through. That really matches up with the tradition of science fiction writing in the Eastern Bloc. A lot of these writers would write about fantastical things, and they were really criticizing the government, but the censors didn't see what was going on. And you could make a critique about a literal machine that you were actually talking about a political machine. Yeah. And the cleverest ones were the most popular ones who were able to uh, sneak by and still criticize the 
situation we were living in and not get in trouble. So that was also my role model when I was listening to comedians that influenced me that they were able to do that. That was pretty cool. But behind the scenes, this is where political correctness got us to. Everybody had those funny jokes about the government and socialism and communism never being able to be there. I remember a joke, three dogs are talking to one another. And one said, you know, one is a capitalist and two are from socialist countries. And the capitalist dog said, if you bark enough, long enough, somebody will throw you meat. And the Polish socialist dog says, what is meat? And the Russian socialist dog said, what is bark? (laughs) So those kind of jokes were circulating with the people you trusted, but you were also playing with fire because if there's informers that you didn't know were informers, they would report you and then you could get in major trouble. So how do you create something? Is it just a matter of being more clever? Like I would imagine it's very difficult to create any kind of art when you're afraid of any one person getting offended, right? How do you rise above that? And you talk about how you did it a bit in Russia. How have you done it since you've come to the U.S.? If you're in southern Missouri or you're doing a show in Hollywood, how do you still make your art and challenge the boundaries, but at the same time not piss people off so that they don't want to be your fans anymore? Again, I was trained to be in that frame of those are the rules. You can't talk about government, politics, sex, and religion. The rest is fine. So you can talk about fish, buttons. So I was able to be funny and successful with those rules. I do the same when I go to, let's say, Branson, Missouri. They had certain rules in that society. You could not say sex. It was not acceptable. This does not surprise me. Being romantic, so that was in a way censorship, but it was minor compared to what I had to do in the Soviet Union. So for me, it was like, sure, making love that was not acceptable. I said being romantic, and they were laughing at those jokes. So when I'm in Hollywood, I can say sex, and whatever else I want to say, but I stayed in my lane, recognizing that here's what I can do, and here's what I can do, and the audience lets you know very quickly, and if you're sensitive to it, you just eliminate those things that don't work for the majority. And that's what the road I chose. Today, most of the comedians are breaking those rules. They're going against, like in the comedy store, you'll hear things that they say, screw political correctness, here is what I'm going to tell you. And you see the, let's say, African-Americans are using N-word left and right, and they're like going, hey, we're allowed to say that, you're not, but we are, and it's okay, and the crowd loves it. And sometimes comedians just bomb. I mean, Sarah Silverman on a recent podcast I heard talked about sometimes you're just not funny and that's part of being a comedian and even an accomplished comedian isn't always 
going to be perfect. And so you're trying new material and getting it right. And it's not always about being PC or not PC. It's just about being funny. I don't have to tell you, you've worked on your craft. You're still working on your craft, I'm sure. All the time, all the time looking for those different opportunities. How do I express even what I'm sharing with you in the serious form? I look for jokes and humor to say, hey, 40% of millennials are saying socialism is good. And I got to tell you, here's how I lived. I lived in a communal apartment with nine other families. My parents and I shared the bedroom till I was 26 years old. When my parents wanted to be romantic or have sex, they would send me to look out the window. And then my dad would say, so what do you see in the window? And I said, our neighbors having sex. And he said, how can you tell? I said, because their son is looking at me. (laughs) And the crowd loves it. And so I am able to bring in this information, kind of gift wrapped in laughter, and hopefully sticks with them. If you're taking censorship to just be mores, right? You're saying just kind of, this is what audiences in this area will not tolerate. It's not that they're saying you can't have a job here, but they will not be your fans. They will not approve of what you say. So it seems like there's something in the neighborhood of censorship built into any comedian-to-audience relationship or speaker-to-audience relationship. So it's just a matter of figuring out a way to, if you want to critique them, right? People generally don't want to be critiqued. So you just have to figure out a way to be clever enough about it that you can make the point and make them think about themselves without just being really in their face. You suck. This is why you're an intolerant bastard. And what's happening also when you add to this, what is the audience there? Like you were asking about pop culture. The culture is shifting and they're the ones who are patrolling it. They are the ones who are, by booing when you say something about, you know, minority or fat person or something like that, they will boo, which was set up by Twitter and Facebook and social media slowly going after that. And some of it is great because it creates more compassion. And some of it becomes a power trip. You're not going to talk about transsexual. You're not going to talk about gay people. You're not going to talk, whether it's good or bad, you're not going to touch those subjects. It's interesting to hear what Yaakov is saying as a warning about the dangers of socialism when similar arguments have been made historically, for instance, by California Marxists, right? People who had themselves moved out of Russia. Hollywood is not controlled by the government, but yet folks like Adorno, these cultural critics have long since from the 50s said the swill that Hollywood is dishing us is intended to control us and to make us the same and to make us passive consumers. And so maybe it's goal is not quite the same as when the Soviet government was creating propaganda, but it's still propaganda and it's still having a similar effect. This is what you should want. This is what you should believe. These are standards of decency. We're going to show you by what heroes we reward and what villains we punish. I don't know. Are you just in general very suspicious of the sort of manipulations of Hollywood? I am. I mean, when you look at, let's say, Aladdin movie, Disney did a fantastic job on creating this amazing production. 
but they needed to change Jasmine's status. She needed to become powerful. She becomes a sultan. All the Marvel movies, the women are kicking everybody's ass. And what's happening, it slowly becomes a normal thing. Men and women are the same, let's say in that. I'd say we're equal, but we're not the same. We shouldn't try to be the same because there is no polarity when you don't have opposites, complementary opposites. There is a lot of conveniences and a lot of empowerment and a lot of wonderful things that happened over last 50 or 100 years. Wonderful. But if it's taking away from something good and wholesome, this is a healthy society that can definitely become even healthier. We just need to continue the conversation, recognize the danger, and say, what are the logical solutions? They're talking about, let, let's say, that universal basic payment or to people. There's a huge concern that the technology is going to take away a lot of jobs. I think we need to encourage people to retrain and say, There are plenty more opportunities. We just can't see that just because you were doing that for 10 years or 20 years, you can't do something else. And I think that would empower Americans to be not the society of consumers, but society of creators. Of course, this is coming from a man who does something that you absolutely can't be trained to do, which is tell jokes. Because you're funny or you're not. Uh, No, he came up with the formula for it. I have the formula. Yes, if you have two complementary opposites, plus you're meeting the needs of your audience, plus you're using humor that they will appreciate, you will create laughter. So it's at least by the numbers you can figure that out. Well, hopefully you'll use your training to start a class for displaced truck drivers to teach them to become professional comedians where all the money is. (laughs) You have a point. You have a point. I got it. I agree. I don't know if all the truck drivers will be funny. I bet they have some great stories. I I do, too. I do, too. And some of them think they are comedians, you know. So, Well, I'll tell you, Yakov, I saw your show in Branson, gosh, it must have been 20 years ago. I don't remember all the jokes, but I remember what a hopeful message you had at the time. And that really hasn't changed. You've seen some things and you've gone down a path, but you still seem to be, if not always optimistic about everything, still have a hopeful outlook on things. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why I came to America and I'm grateful that my parents came with me. And I remember Thanksgiving was coming up and it was the first Thanksgiving and people explained to me that this is the holiday where Pilgrims and Indians got together and agreed to build a casino. This was a simple explanation. But when I was pressing, like, no, but what is this holiday about? And people said, well, for things that we have in America, we say thanks. It just didn't feel like it was enough for all the opportunities and all the prosperity and all the freedoms. All you need to say is thanks. It didn't feel like it was enough. And I remember that first Thanksgiving, my mom, my dad, and I, in a little apartment in New York, in Washington Heights, we prepared the meal, we held hands, and 
my dad said a prayer to good food and health, and then something happened. Instead of releasing our hands, we couldn't let go. We kept holding on to each other tighter and tighter, realizing that we were together and we were free. Three grown people were standing trying to figure out how to express this appreciation, and we didn't know how. And later I figured, it's just thanks. Nice and simple. What else can you say or do? And try to pass it on, I suppose, right? Absolutely. And recognize that it's still happening. Just because we might not like the election results or just because we might not like PC or other things, as long as we're aware and able to have this kind of a conversation and it can go online and anybody can hear it, that still makes America what America in immigrants like myself, in our minds, that's what it is. And I think we need to do everything to preserve that. Well, thank you so much. Have a wonderful rest of your day, Yaakov. Thank you, guys. It was very enlightening. I hope I didn't depress you too much. No, no. We'll just not one bit. We'll, this was great. We'll edit thank all you. those parts out. It'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> censorship here we go <laughs> what a country right what a podcast <laughs> what a podcast why not all right have a well, good one well that was an interesting interview is not what i expected out of a, a comedian what would y'all think well here's what i don't like about russians <laughs> Now that Yakov is off the line, I'll tell you what I really think about. I'll tell you what I really think about you, Mark. I feel like we did some good research that we could possibly put in another podcast. There's a lot of stuff about tribalism that I don't think we got to. No, we were talking about other important things. So in the pre the scoping call, I will call it that I had with Yakov about this, I did not understand his point really. So I I sat down and I tried to figure out what could this cultural products make us all the same. What could that mean? Because I don't really see how, I mean, I tried to make a case for how censorship and the threat of bad repercussions for things you could say could kind of scare us into being the same. But I think those are distinct problems, right? That's not what Devo was talking about, that culture is making us into mindless drones. Like the fact that you can't make fun of minorities doesn't make us into mindless drones, doesn't make us all the same. And what he was talking about specifically with the sexes seemed like a separate point that he thought that in the Soviet Union, there was a breakdown of what he was going to say, an intentional erosion of traditional sex roles. You know, we're all just people. We're all equivalent people. We're all citizens. And that that made the citizens there easier to manipulate, right? They didn't have these sort of traditional things to fall back on. And I think he agreed that like there can be progress in these areas, right? You don't want people being treated horribly. You don't want women to be treated as an inferior class of citizens. But he at least saw that there was, thought that there's more value in retaining some connection to the traditions about these as opposed to just saying we're in a post-sexual world. <laughs> we're all just humans individually. I don't know, Erica, you seemed at the time not to uh, take that point very well. What's your thought on that? Well, being the woman right here, I felt like I needed to say something, but I wasn't sure what to say in the moment. I think we're all quite nuanced people as individuals. And so I don't think that separating men from women in specific roles is very unique at all, because that is binary. 
And I think what the kids coming up now are really, uh, a lot of people are trying to get us to realize, like, no, 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 the world is not binary. You even look at certain women. There's the runner who recently has been told that she may not, not be able to compete any longer because her testosterone levels are too high. But she's a woman who happens to be born with high testosterone levels. So I wouldn't say that she's trying to be like a man. She was just born with a lot of testosterone. And that's unique in her own way. And I have a lot of male friends who feel extremely uncomfortable with the proper male ideals. And they feel much more comfortable around women. So I don't know what those roles are supposed to be that we're supposed to fit into. I know it's a popular opinion, but I think if we really start breaking it down, we realize that we're all extremely nuanced in our own ways, which is actually hilarious when we think about what we were talking about with (laughs) homogenization, right? That we're all unique, just like everyone else. And there is something extraordinarily PC about grouping people into these two categories of men and women. Choosing to see things as binary is is a point of view. And that's fine for Yaakov or anyone to think that. But he has his viewpoint and I have mine. And the truth is, from his background, he makes a lot of jokes about it. We've all heard them. His experience, I can't put myself in his shoes the way I can put myself in Mark's as someone who grew up down the street from me. It's just a such a different starting point that he brings. So we've been talking throughout this discussion about why conforming, why being all the same seems like a danger. But I thought the big insight that Yaakov was bringing to us as a psychologist here is the idea that unless you have difference, you can't have actual conversation, that you have to have something, somebody that's kind of your, in some sense, an opposite in order to have this relate. What, what did you guys make of that? I think you're wrong and I disagree. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's difficult to figure out what exactly is opposite. It depends what you're talking about and how broad of a spectrum you're talking. When you think about your own relationships or the fact that we're having this discussion and there's a chemistry that has to be required, if we all thought exactly the same, same thing, there would not be very much to tell each other. You find this, this picture of complementary opposites interesting? I think that some of that is probably true. I spoke to a psychologist a couple of years ago who... I met, he came to one of my shows. We were having this great conversation afterwards. And he had been one of the psychologists who had worked on research regarding marriage and long-term relationships. And the reason his, his work was so significant was because he actually included more about gay marriages as well as straight marriages. And it was early on in this type of research. And I said, well, what have you learned? What makes a great lasting relationship? And he said, opposites attract. However, you need to have some shared core values. So yeah, I think that absolutely some opposites can attract. We see that in daily life. We see that in great films, right? We have to have some sense of conflict so we can have some sense of resolution. But we also have to have a point at which to jump off and listen to each other and be able to have an actual conversation rather than somebody always trying to manipulate someone to one side or the other. And on that concept of complementary opposites, Erica just focused on the, I think, opposites part nicely. I really keyed in on the complementary part when Yaakov said that, because this idea that two things complete each other to make a whole, so often when we think of opposites, we think of things that are on opposite sides of the spectrum, and when you add them together, all you have are two ends with nothing in the middle. And the idea that they're complementary opposites is you put them together and they form a whole thing. So they do meet in the middle 
somewhere if indeed they are complementary. So that's what I like about that concept that he proposes. I've always sort of thought that the thing that you really need for good communication is a little bit of friction. This idea that if everyone agrees with each other, then it's kind of boring. And if there's too much friction, there's no sliding back and forth. Things just lock together and you don't get anywhere. But a little bit of friction, is it's enough to, as they say, make a little bit of heat, right? You get some interplay, you get things going. If that term works for him, that's great. It's not exactly how I think of things, but I, I do see a lot of merit in that concept. Well, and I like how he could use that at the individual level and also at the political level, that when the country is running correctly, then you have the left and the right that are in conversation with each other. They don't agree about some things, but they can communicate well enough so that there is a push and pull as opposed to either them just mashing into one thing, which is certainly not a worry for us. Perhaps that was a worry during the Eisenhower era, as you were pointing out, Brian. But what's more, the issue now is the forces of conformity within those two groups that then make it so that they are completely opposites and are not complementary and cannot talk to each other and cannot have a, a reasonable relationship. Any last thoughts about same-sameness or how this came out of connecting it back up to, uh, are we going to all wear Devo hats? Well, when they have Devo night at Wrigley Field, we'll all be wearing our, our Devo hats. So yes, I plan on that, Mark. Is that a reference that even tracks now, Erica? Do you know? Do you know what I'm talking? Of course, I know who Devo is. Yes, I'm not that young. Yeah, I'm in. I mean, it is pretty fun. You know, I have this trivia team, and we all have matching shirts. Makes you feel like you're part of something. Absolutely, I'll do it. We're all the same and different. All right. And this is making me want to have a, a follow-up discussion on irony. So <laughs> can you ironically wear the same hats? <laughs> or are you just actually being in lockstep when you do that? Ask the hipsters. So long, everybody. Bye. Thanks. I escaped from the Soviet Union because I didn't want to be followed. And here I am <laughs> asking you to please... Follow me on Twitter. It's Yakov underscore Smirnov. Excellent. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life podcast network. Please visit partiallyexaminedlife.com. And it's also presented by openculture.com. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode, and you get to hear the episodes in advance of everyone else at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop.